You got the AeroPress hand grinder, uh, but most importantly, lots of coffee. I brought seven bags with me this trip. <laughs> seven one-pound bags. So that took up a bit of room in the suitcase, but I like to share it when I'm here. Welcome to the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast. I'm Matthew Pioro. You just heard from Gunnar Holmgren. He was talking about some of the essentials he's brought for a two-month stint of racing cross-country in Europe. The under-23 rider from Aurelia, Ontario does love his coffee. In fact, before I started recording this interview, he was giving me some great advice on how I could get a better shot of espresso out of my machine. Holmgren and I not only talk coffee, but mountain biking in Europe, ambitious cooking exploits, ambitious cyclocross projects, and figure skating. Yes, figure skating. Before Holmgren started to really focus on mountain biking and cyclocross at around age 13, he was a serious figure skater. Since totally switching to bikes, he's won the Canada Cup overall as a junior, He's raced mountain bike world cups and world championships, and he's been a national cyclocross champion three times, twice in under 23 and once as a junior. So stay tuned for my conversation with barista, cook, coach, but most of all, a racer, Gunnar Holmgren. It's May. Spring is in full swing for much of the country. I bet you've been riding outside a lot more. Well, you should put those kilometers you're covering to a good cause. Right now, MS Bike has its single ride stamina challenge running for this month. How many clicks can you cover in one go? Log your efforts using Ride with GPS. You can also participate in the 90,000 kilometer collective challenge within the MS Society Strava Club. Why 90,000 kilometers? because there are currently 90,000 Canadians living with MS. Canada has one of the highest rates of MS in the world. So help out. Your fundraising efforts will support research and support people with MS. Head to msbike.ca. That's msbike.ca. Register and start fundraising. Gunnar Holmgren, you're in Germany, and in a few days you'll race the World Cup in Albstadt. Listeners will know the results of that race when they hear this interview, but we don't. Still, I'm glad I caught you at this moment. This is your second trip to Europe during the pandemic. In 2020, you competed in the World Cups and the World Championships. Can you compare arriving in Europe in 2020 with arriving on that continent to race in spring of 2021? For sure. This arrival has been pretty smooth. I mean, traveling in the pandemic is almost easier. Most athletes would say right now, <laughs> there's less people sitting on the plane and you get your own bench, which is usually a massive bonus during a normal season. But uh, yeah, other than the few extra papers we needed to show people, it's been good. Yeah. Only one COVID test so far. Here in Germany, we're getting tested 
every day before we're at the venue. So to go and pre-ride the course, you get a test or to go and pick up registration, you're getting a test. So yeah, tomorrow, Friday will be my first day on the official course recon. But yeah, it's been pretty smooth. I understand you were maybe a bit hesitant, understandably, last year before making the decision to go to Europe. What helped you either get over that hesitancy or helped you to decide to go last year? Definitely my team. We had a few meetings before going just to make sure everyone was on the same page. It was sort of like we wanted to plan the trip in advance, but it's too hard to do that in these circumstances. And ended up being really last minute. But I trust the managers and they always do a great job taking care of us. And we saw there were a ton of procedures to keep us safe in place. So uh, yeah, we, we decided to pull the trigger. And once we were over here, it flowed really well. Yeah, I had some great performances. So I'm really glad that I went and that I came back this year. What performance from last year really stuck with you? My better result was at the first World Cup in Nova Mesto. I'll just run you through all three, if you don't mind. Sure. Because <laughs> I learned a lot last year, even though it was only three races. The first race in Nova Mesto, I paced perfectly almost. There's not much I would change. I achieved my goal of the season, top 20 at a World Cup. So instead of just doing the exact same the next race and hoping I'm a little faster, I decided to... Uh, go out a little harder in the start lap. And I did. And I ended up in the top 10 for a bit, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> Usually I'm back in like 70th after the start lap. So to see like the front of the race as we're coming across the line the first time was pretty exhilarating. But uh, it was a little too deep of an effort. I was way too far into the red and I drifted back a bit. But it was a great learning lesson. I knew I could get up there and with more fitness, I surely could hold on to the front guys. And I got a taste of what the pace is like. And then going into Worlds, I decided to go a little more conservative, like my first race, for the better result. And I did. And it wasn't my best day. My legs felt like crap <laughs> in the warm-up and the first lap. But uh, I was really happy with my mental performance in that race. And I ended up just charging through the pack slowly. And uh, I had another top 20 result. So. I was really happy with that. A great trip overall. I've heard from some riders that the compressed season just did not work for them. But it's good, I think, that you were able to, I don't know, have like this really intense focus bit of learning out of it. Yeah, on that, I think having done the cyclocross, Christmas cross races in over in Europe definitely helped because it's the same format, like race sometimes a world cup and then the next day is a super prestige like a c1 and everyone who did the world cup is there so like two high level races back to back and then a week later another high level race yeah i just i knew how i could prepare and recover in between the races and yeah it worked out really well on the subject of cyclocross the past two januaries let's say um well this last one uh it, it was definitely would have been a challenge to do cyclocross in europe but uh, the January before, you weren't racing cross in Europe. You, you took a bit of a break. And this also coincides with your arrival on your team, Pivot Cycles OTE. Tell me about that uh, focus on mountain biking that has now been part of your last two years and, and part of your, you know, January, February cycle. 
Yeah, joining the team definitely helped me decide to do a season focused on mountain biking. I never have before. But when I took the rest, it was more, I knew I needed to take the rest just to be always moving forward with my training and not uh, going too deep or overtraining. Yeah, last season didn't, I only got two races in after my great winter of training, but they were two great races. And then I sort of held it through the summer and I had three great races at the end of the year. So I just decided to continue the trend since uh, they canceled all the under 23 men cross races in Europe last year. You know, I could have gone over and raced elite, but I decided to just save some of my resources for a good winter of training and another great season of mountain biking with my team. With your focus on mountain biking, what has that done for you or what improvements have you noticed? Hard to tell because I haven't raced that much. (laughs) Hopefully we'll see after this trip. This winter I spent three months in Victoria. I have noticed my technical skill improving quite a bit. Riding with my pivot teammates as well. We're always pushing each other in the trails. And yeah, Victoria is hard riding um, at Heartland. And we were riding there pretty much every day. So we were forced to get better. As I mentioned, this is your second season with the Team Pivot Cycles OTE. And I was going to ask you earlier, or as I was getting ready for this interview, I was going to ask you what it's like being the the only Anglo-Ontarian on a Quebec-based team. But you went to a French high school. And uh, do you speak... Or did you speak French uh, at home? Not at home. I didn't. And when I was in school, I really wanted to transfer to English school. Now I'm grateful for it. I'm glad my parents put me in the French school. Yeah, it's working out really well with the team. I mean, I'm fluent in French and it definitely helps being able to communicate with your teammates like that. So how did you come to race for that team? How How did you end up joining that squad? Uh, I was friends with a bunch of the guys before, and we'd done a few camps together, just like training camps. I joined them on a race project as well once. We got talking in the off-season, and they thought I'd be a great addition, and I thought I'd be a great addition to the team. So, yeah. Uh, but, like, most importantly, we all, like, meshed together. We're all, like, great friends. Uh, and that does a lot for you in your race week when the vibes are good and everyone's there to help each other. I want to go uh, a bit back further in time, even past high school. When would you say you started riding and competing on the bike seriously? I was 13, I think. And was it before that that you were a serious figure skater? Yes. Do you want the story? (laughs) Maybe in a nutshell. tell Tell me about your figure skating career. Yeah. When I was younger, my parents wanted me to learn how to skate and I wanted to play hockey, but they said first you have to, like, we want you to be able to skate well. So they put me in the can skate, it's called. And all the coaches are figure skating coaches. There's a lot of focus on like edge work and stuff. I think after I was through with that, I just decided I wanted to try figure skating and I sort of followed it for a bit until I was 13 and I really wanted to ride more. (laughs) I think it was just before the Sudbury Canada Cup. My family was planning to go to that to race. My brothers and sisters and my parents. 
Um, and I'm like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And I sort of was hooked on the mountain biking a little more than the skating. <laughs> so had you raced much on the bike before that Canada Cup? I did the Wednesday night series at Hardwood, as most people in Ontario do. We we rode as a family at first together, and then we did the Wednesday nights as a family. And I was always there to like beat my time, and I was checking the timesheet at the end always. And uh, yeah, that was going on in the background as I was skating as well. And then uh, yeah, just shifted to mountain biking. And so was it was it one day you decided to hang up your skates and and focus on on mountain biking? Yeah, I was slowly just not as passionate about the skating anymore. It was pretty much one day that I decided. It was a slow build up to one day. And uh, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> let's go to the race. And you were 13. How did your parents react or what were their feelings about this? Well, my dad was stoked <laughs> <laughs> because he was uh, he was training to be national champion that year. Master, I think, or the year after. Yeah, he's he's really passionate about the mountain biking and yeah, he was excited to see me join along. And uh yeah, my mom as well. I want to talk uh, maybe a bit more about your parents in a second, but uh, before we leave skating behind, can you give us an idea of of where your skills had gotten to in figure skating? I had competed at nationals twice in Regina, Saskatchewan. What are some of the moves you you would do? I was doing the double jumps and working on the triples. So I was doing the two rotations in the air consistently, and then I was going for the three when I stopped. Sounds pretty serious. Yeah, I was getting to the point where guys my age were like growing and able to do the bigger jumps, because it does require a, a ton of strength to do the bigger jumps. Um, yeah, it was around that time. Your parents are longtime mountain bikers and cyclocross racers. Can you briefly describe their careers? Oh, boy. My dad started riding around his neighborhood across the border to Quebec. Because he, he, he grew up in Hawkesbury? Yeah, that's right. So he'd ride with his buddies over to the border in Quebec because uh, they were illegal drinking age over there, I guess. <laughs> Which is a great story and a great reason. <laughs> And just for like adventuring as well. Um, And my mom joined in, I think she first joined university racing team and then sort of became passionate about it and trained more and spent a winter in BC and raced for the national team a few times. And then they met. My dad was my mom's coach. He was the provincial coach at the time. And uh, yeah, my mom raced. She got to travel do a few World Cups, and then uh, I came along, and then four more came along, <laughs> so there was a bit of a break, and then uh, they picked up right where they left off. <laughs> um, a few Maple Leaf jerseys in the master categories. and That's right. I remember uh, 2019 in Peterborough, where your mom is from, but that's where you and your father uh, one Maple Leaf jerseys. That's a big highlight for me and for him. It was fun. It was a good day. And your younger sisters, uh, Ava and Isabella, they race as well, correct? Yeah, they're getting quick. Are they going to follow in your uh, metaphorical pedal strokes and, and race in Europe? Probably. I know 
They're really stoked on Fayetteville. Uh, it's their first year junior cross this year, and they've been dying to race big races like I have been. Yeah, hopefully that ends up going ahead or somewhere else and they can get to it. But yeah, they're getting fast. Ava's done a bigger ride than I ever have. And wait, what is that ride? She did an Everest on Scenic Caves. Right. So remind us where what Scenic Caves is. It's a climb in Collingwood. It's probably the biggest climb in Ontario. It's got to be up there. Uh, you climb up the escarpment. It's like 2.5k, 11%, I think. It's a monster climb, and people go to do it just once. <laughs> and uh, she wanted to Everest, and I sort of helped her choose the climb. And uh, yeah, she did 44 repeats, I think. Yeah, like 14 hours. Oof. My longest ride is like 11. So. <laughs> and this was in summer of 2020, I think, correct? It was in the fall last year. How many bikes are there in the Holmgren um, stable at the at the house? Well, we like to joke that it really actually has three bike shops. <laughs> There's two real bike shops, <laughs> and we're the third. Um, pro, at any given time, probably like 10. 10? Oh, that seems reasonable almost. Yeah, but like maximum, oh God, cross bike, mountain bike, road bike. Or no, cross bike, mountain bike for each of us. That's 10. And a few fat bikes in there. City bike. Most like 18. <laughs> right. So your parents are passionate cyclists. Was the passion just sort of handed down to you guys by osmosis and it was up for you guys to choose or how did like how did that work? Maybe. Maybe it's in my genes. Maybe. <laughs> well, when you have like the support, I don't know, like to pursue a sport like that, that's equipment intensive and parents who are willing to help you along that path. It's like who doesn't have fun mountain biking? You sort of get hooked into it you mentioned the wednesday night races at hardwood ski and bike now this is a set of trails it's a facility not far from um where you grew up in aurelia tell me uh, maybe a bit more what the significance of that location uh, is for you oh hardwood yeah well my first trail riding memories are at hardwood so that's a big deal i have memories of my whole family going there every Wednesday, being excited for it. It was like a little trip and a, like an event at night. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty significant place. Now I get to coach young kids there, which is fun. It's a great training ground for me, even when the Wednesday night races aren't happening. I did a little race simulation myself before I left for Europe on the Nationals course. But yeah, it's pretty amazing how many high-performance mountain bikers come out of hardwood. Like, there's four of us here right now at the World Cup who had their start at hardwood. I'm trying to rem remember all the names. Like It'd be myself. Pete Dezera. Yeah, Pete, Quinton, and Jen Jackson. Of course, Jen Jackson, yes. Is there any more? I don't know. I think it's just us. <laughs> riders, if, if we've forgotten you, hardwood riders, we apologize. Yeah. <laughs> Another connection to Hardwood was the Hardwood Next Wave team. That's a, a development squad. You're still involved with it. Can you tell me what your current role is with that um, organization? I'm uh, the athlete representative on the board of directors. I'm also a coach for the team when I'm home. What are some of the things that that has meant for you or what opportunities has that given you or what duties does, do you have because of that? 
not many duties on the board, but it's great insight into what's happening at a club, probably for future reference for myself, if I ever have a club. It's great to see how all the decisions are made and what other things there are to consider when you're running a club of young riders. And then like I'm an active member during the training sessions. Before I was one of the athletes and now I'm one of the coaches. And uh, yeah, I get to like mentor some of the kids, including my sisters on the team and sort of watch their progression. And it's pretty cool to see and to do. You've had some other experiences uh, helping young riders. I'm thinking of a time when you were helping young riders at World Cup cyclocross events in the U.S. How did you come to be be leading uh, some kids on these, these big races in the U.S.? Well, I wanted to go race first myself, and I knew I was going to be driving. So I'm like, oh, might as well see if my sister wants to come. Oh, yeah. And like Ian Ackert, yeah, he can come as well. And then Ian's dad, Mark Ackert, who's uh, he's he's running Next Wave, Hardwood Next Wave. He's like, yeah, I've got this sprinter van that you can take with you and load all your gear in the back and you can have our tents and stuff. I'm like, oh, sweet, this will be a pro setup. Might as well, like fill the van with riders so i sent out an invite on uh on email to all the next wave riders and a bunch of them joined in and yeah i was sort of i ended up leading i don't know how old i was 19 i think i ended up leading this i guess a race project of a bunch of riders over to a couple world cups in the states that's wild at an impromptu cyclocross project at, that you became the leader of. And how did it go? It was very successful, I think. I did have a couple of good races between all the bike washing and stuff. I learned a lot as someone who runs a project, and I gained a lot of respect for other people who lead projects. And the other athletes walked away with, for sure, like a fire of wanting to do more. They were hooked on the experience and the race. So yeah, that was a big goal going into it, I think. That does sound like a success. And also maybe a challenging feat of logistics. Did did everything go smoothly? It was challenging and sort of after the first weekend of racing, I was pretty like burnt out and uh, because I was the only one driving and I was sort of leading the groceries and the cooking and the dinner and the bike washing and everything. And you can only delegate so much to like younger kids. Um, and when your performance is hanging in the balance of how well these things unfold, you want it to be done well. And it's hard to like let go of it, but I learned how to let go and let the kids do some of the work. But my mom ended up coming. <laughs> she booked a flight to come watch us race and to help out. Yeah, it saved me quite a bit on the second weekend. I want to bring up maybe another feat of logistics that I've heard of. Now, I'm not sure how old you were when this happened, but I understand it was before you could drive. And you went to the grocery store. I don't know where this is going, actually. (laughs) You don't know this? (laughs) No, I don't know. Okay, this this is, I have a source that tells me you went to the grocery store and got live lobsters to cook for your family. 
I should maybe reiterate, there are seven members of your family in total, and I understand you made creme brulee for dessert. How old were you when this happened? Oh, 15 maybe? 16? 15? I know who your source is, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a great segue into the cooking segment of our show. There you go. Well, this is just such a great story. But so I want to know what motivated you. Oh, by the way, maybe I should stop being coy for listeners. Um, There is a story coming out in the magazine. It is written by Jake Williams. It may even be on stands when this podcast lands. And it's a profile of the Holmgren family. So there are more stories about Gunnar and his uh, cycling family. But there, this this story only gets maybe two lines in, in, in this feature. So I want to know what motivated you to um, do such an ambitious meal at 15. It seems like a little crazy now and funny, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, I can't remember. I've always liked cooking and eating. Obviously, you have to like eating um, as a cyclist. <laughs> I, I wanted to know what lobster tasted like, I guess. So I'm like, oh, I'll make lobster for the family and not be selfish. <laughs> no, I, I treated the family to like a lobster dinner. Yeah, that's it. So, but wait, you you hadn't had lobster before that? I think I did when I was much younger, but I, I couldn't remember the taste. Yeah, I wanted to know because it, it looks awesome. And, I don't know, everyone talks about it. So instead of like getting canned lobster or something, you bought live lobsters. Yeah. Yeah, I did my research. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, I gather everything went went okay with that meal? Yeah, it was great. I had like, we had a huge pot to boil the lobster in. Uh, I melted some butter to dip it in. And then there was the creme brulee after. <laughs> I sort of thought, oh, what's a, like a, a luxury dessert to feed everyone <laughs> that goes well with lobster? So I'm like, oh, yeah, we'll make creme brulee. <laughs> All right. Sticking with the food theme, I want to now switch to coffee. This is a great subject. Okay. Now, did cycling lead you to coffee or did you kind of find coffee independently of cycling? Because, you know, the two things are are so intertwined. But yeah, how did you come to coffee? They definitely are. I'd say cycling did lead me to coffee. The first coffee I bought for myself was in Girona because I was on a, a camp for cross there. Uh, and there's La Fabrica, as most people would know, I think. It's pretty famous. Christian Meyer, a Canadian, runs it. So my first coffee that I bought myself was a pretty great coffee. I think most people have, like, Tim's and then stick with that, or, like, they end up finding great coffee. I just, like, boom, straight into, like, awesome specialty coffee. So I sort of developed a taste for that. And uh, the fall of 2019... A job opportunity came up at a local cafe in Aurelia, and I was home that fall uh, training, uh, not going to cross. So I ended up working quite a bit, learning more and more about coffee and getting to taste more and more kinds of coffee. And uh, yeah, it's sort of it's developed in like a side passion away from cycling, but also intertwined with cycling right now. And I work at a cafe that just opened up last year. Sort of like the right-hand man when I'm at home. How many cups of coffee do you have a day? Not as many as people would think. Usually just one. Okay. And you savor it. Yeah. 
and I make sure it's a good one. I don't drink coffee for the effect as much. I drink it for the taste. Do you travel with food infrastructure? Like, are you the kind of person who brings a stovetop coffee maker or a blender even, or your own food for racing and stuff? I have a few things that are hard to find in Europe that I bring with me, food-related, just like hemp, chia, flax seeds, which are great for your fatty acids and omegas. Coffee, I have a setup. It's not super elaborate. I've got an AeroPress. That makes great coffee. You got the AeroPress hand grinder, uh, but most importantly, lots of coffee. I brought seven bags with me this trip. <laughs> seven one-pound bags. So that took up a bit of room in the suitcase, but I like to share it when I'm here. Right, with your teammates. Mm-hmm. And some of my other teammates are into coffee. They'll share some with me, whatever coffee they brought with them, and I'll share some with them. Is it true that you once told... Marc-Andre Fortier, that a cyclist doesn't get to have a pastry uh, during a ride or for a ride shorter than five hours. Yeah. <laughs> you, did, you did tell him this. So I think where this came from is one of my other friends telling me that, but I think he got it from a book of like cycling rules or something, but I'm not saying to follow that. You can definitely have a pastry if you haven't ridden five hours. But it's like, when you know you have five hours to do, it's great motivation to finish it off well, to know that there's a pastry at the end, especially when you're in Girona. What prompted that question is, um, I believe he posted a photo of his uh, head unit that showed an, uh, his ride was five hours, 21 minutes and 24 seconds. And it was next to a picture of a pastry. Was he doing this just to, to, to razz you? Or has he actually started doing longer rides for pastries? No, I don't think we rode longer. Maybe if we had like four and a half hours, we'd do an extra half hour. Or like if we if we did six hours and hadn't planned on getting a pastry, we'd go get one because we're like, oh, we're over five hours. But, so it equals itself out. Okay. There's pastry math. Yeah. <laughs> Something to think about on the longer days. Are the Olympics a goal of yours? Maybe Paris 2024? Yeah, that's an interesting topic for cyclists, I think, because the biggest thing for us, I'd say for like mountain biking is the worlds, because you get to wear the stripes the next year and then on your arm forever after that. And to me, worlds is the biggest event. Olympics is like a one shot, which makes it, I guess, more impressive. But worlds is more like the Tour de France to me. Yeah, Olympics is a, like, for sure it's a goal to go to the Olympics. But an even bigger goal would be Worlds. You have an Olympian on your team, Leandre Bouchard. And I imagine there are some other Olympic hopefuls on the team. What are some of the team's discussions around the Olympics? Right now we're focused on Dre. And he's focused on the Olympics. He's been before and he has a good shot at going again uh, this year if they happen. Most of the Olympic discussions happen with the national team for like selections and such. Within our team, it's just supporting us as best as possible. And if Olympics are on our radar, then supporting us for that. What is a technical skill that you are currently working on? It's taken me a long... Well, it hasn't taken me long because I didn't practice it, but I learned how to wheelie in the winter. Now I can wheelie comfortably. 
which is fun, <laughs> more fun than I thought it would be. Something I'm practicing long, steep, really steep, bumpy descents. I think probably you're always practicing that as a cross country athlete because the descents are getting more and more insane. But a specific skill next on the list is probably a manual. Marc Andre actually did a piece for Cycling Canada and how he taught himself how to manual last year. So I've got a great teacher. Would knowing how to manual, would that help? Like, I know it helps BMX riders get speed on their courses. Would it be something that would help you directly or indirectly in cross country? There aren't many rollers to manual in a mountain bike race. And if there are, the gain is pretty small. But just having like the balance point dialed in and being comfortable, like being really far away from your bike behind the back of your bike will help a lot for steep descents. And anytime you have to throw the bike forward in an awkward position, you know exactly how far you can throw it or exactly how far you need to go to get that little kick. So yeah, probably indirectly it helps, but more than I think people would think. It's about seven in the evening where you are now. Do you know what and when your next cup of coffee will be? Uh, tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> Not tonight. I won't. I will rarely drink coffee afternoon just so I can, I know I'll have a good sleep. But if, uh, if there's like a little espresso in the afternoon, I'll have it. But no, after seven is too late for sure. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I can see my selection of coffee beans <laughs> right now. And uh, I'll probably have one from Colombia tomorrow morning. It's a lighter roast. It has uh, nectarine and strawberry notes. All right. Well, uh, enjoy that coffee. Um, enjoy the, the racing, which um, I understand you'll be in. The plan is to be in Europe until early July. Yeah, that's right. Well, I hope it goes smoothly. Uh, best of luck at the races and thank you very much for your time thank you so much it's been awesome i want to do more podcasts now <laughs> <laughs> right on well we'll have you back sweet and that's the episode it's written and edited by me matthew piero i had a lot of help from jake williams Look out for Jake's feature on Gunnar Holmgren and his cycling family in the June-July issue of Canadian Cycling Magazine, which is available in good old-fashioned print and the oh-so-modern Apple News+. Plus. I also had help from web editors Terry McCall and Lily Hansen-Gillis. The Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast is produced by Adam Killick. He composed the music, too. Thanks to Ontario Creates for its support. And thank you for listening. Please rate and review the show, ride safely, and I'll talk to you later.